Happy New Year. And you just had a Merry Christmas. I hope and trust that you had a great time with your family. Would anyone join me in saying that you ate far too much food? How many of you feel guilty because you didn't go work it off yet? It's all good. The holidays are a fantastic time to celebrate with family, to create new memories, to do new things. And for our family, we've created new traditions. We ate at an Asian restaurant on, new Year, or on Christmas Eve because that is a new tradition and it's a lot of fun. We had a Nerf war on Christmas Day because that is a co-family tradition. And it was a blast. We made new memories. But it's not always a joyous time of year for everyone. For some people, they feel very lonely and isolated. And when they see families celebrating, to them, it's not that simple. It's not joyous. And it could be for any number of circumstances, whether it was the loss of a loved one at this time of year, or a divorce, or something that happened in their lives. There are people that this season tends to just make the feelings of loneliness greater. I found this as I was preparing for this sermon. I found this man posted on Twitter. He's not famous. He's, he's a Detroit Lions fan, which he knows all about isolation and loneliness. Um, but what he said, I think, was very profound and very good. He said, the existence of holiday sadness doesn't mean everyone needs to stop the festive celebrating. Please catch that. It doesn't mean we need to stop. But holiday sadness does exist. He says, the holidays are great and important. Enjoy them as much as you can, maybe even more than you can. The holidays are a fun time for most, but some people are in a place where the holidays are mostly a reminder of sad things. It's easy to get lost in that fog and feel alone when it seems like the rest of the world is having a great time and you don't feel like joining in but if you know someone for whom the holidays are sad, think about taking a little time to quietly do something nice to them. Let them know that even if they may feel very lonely, that they're not alone. It really doesn't have to be much. A plate of cookies, an empathetic note, a small gift you know will make them smile. It doesn't take much to shine a little light into a dark place. And a little can go a long way toward making a difficult time a bit less difficult. And for some of us, this rings true because we live this. Every year when this time comes around, there is, it's not a great time for us. We feel lonely or isolated. And this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about isolation. I want to share a story with you that, that I found in preparing for this sermon. It's about a man named Brett Archibald. He lives in South Africa. Um, he, in 2013, he was on his yearly surfing trip with his buddies. Anybody else go on a yearly surfing trip? Nobody from Texas goes on a surfing trip yearly. Okay, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, Brett, they went into the Indian Ocean, but before they got on the boat, they went to a little Italian restaurant and they picked up some calzones. 
And one of the calzones, as they cut into it, he was sharing it with another man on the trip. He cut into it and he smelled it and he said it just smelled rancid. So he took a few bites and he told his friend, this thing's poisonous. We really shouldn't eat this. And he stopped, but his friend did not. His friend woofed down the whole thing. And then they got on a boat to go into the open water. If you have ever eaten before getting on a deep sea boat, you know how bad of an idea this actually is. They get on the boat. He starts to feel a little bit sick. And at 1.30 a.m., he wakes up, and this sudden urge is overwhelming him. He needs to go and make it to the bathroom, and he vomits into, fortunately, he vomits into the toilet, and everything is contained. He gets up again at 3.30 and does it again. And then he wakes up a third time before sunrise. He's like, I have to get some fresh air. So he goes topside and on his way there, he sees his friend that had eaten the rest of the calzon looking exactly like he did. So he grabs his friend. He's like, man, we need air. So he takes him up to the top of the boat, sets his friend down, and then he goes because he feels the urge again. He goes to the side of the boat, and he has this realization that if he throws up again, he's going to pass out. If you have ever tried to hold back that that feeling and just tried to resist it, you know it's just impossible. And sure enough, he does. He goes to the side of the boat, and he throws up again and passes out and falls 20 feet down to the water. No life preserver. No preparation. Feeling as sick as he has ever felt. Splash. Hits the water. Gets sucked underneath the boat. Miraculously doesn't get chopped up by the propellers. Ends up coming awake and realizing what has just happened as he sees the boat that he was just on sailing away and no one had any idea that he was not on it. He fell out where that little yellow pin to the right is. It's about 20 miles from the nearest shore, 20 nautical miles. While in the water, he realized he he wanted to stay alive and so he swam He had a little piece of paper that he found in his pocket, and so he took it out and tried to write his wife a note, which he realized that wasn't going to work, and so he just let it float, and he followed it with the tide. He was attacked by seagulls who dive-bombed him and cut open a part of his head, so now he was bleeding into the water, at which point he saw a shark coming toward him, and the shark amazingly maybe miraculously, bumped him and then realized he really wasn't worth the effort and swam away. And he said the worst thing was these little silver gray fish that came after him because as he was kicking, his, it opened up sores on the backs of his legs and these fish went and they just nibbled at the backs of his legs in the salt water. He was isolated. He was utterly alone. Have you felt that? Maybe not to that degree. Probably not that badly. But it's something that we can relate to because isolation is part of the human experience. We all know what isolation feels like, don't we? If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to start in Genesis. So you can turn to Genesis 2. We'll start in verse 7, but but I want to point this out first, the idea that relational isolation 
is a result of sin. And we're going to start before relational isolation takes place. So we're going to start in the garden. This is what Genesis 2 says. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. In verse 15, the Lord God took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. You see, from the beginning of Scripture, God wants man, humans, to be involved in the work that he is doing. You read Genesis through Revelation and you see God's partnership with man. There is no isolation here. There is no breaking here. It is all working together. But then sin enters the world and sin brings relational isolation. So flip over to Genesis 3, starting in verse 6. This is a very familiar passage. If you've read the Bible much, then you read this right away. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their very first act after sin is introduced to the world is to isolate themselves from one another, and fig leaves are not all that effective. But it gets worse. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. You see, the very first thing that happens with sin is to isolate ourselves from one another and from God. Relational isolation is a result of sin, and it's also a result, it's also part of a universal human experience. And I can think of no better example than Job, a man who did nothing wrong to deserve what happened, and yet this is how he felt. He was isolated, cut off. He felt that God had struck him. Let's go to Job 19 and look at verses 13 through 21. And as we read this, I want you to focus on and identify the relational aspect of these verses. Look at what Job is saying has happened to him because of what God has done. He is blaming God wrongly, but he does blame God. He says, he has removed my brothers from me. My acquaintances have abandoned me. My relatives stopped coming by and my close friends have forgotten me. My house guests and female servants regard me as a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call for my servant, but he does not answer, even if I beg him with my own mouth. And then Job says something that I think we can all relate to, at least I can in the morning. My breath is offensive to my wife. Anyone else, your breath offensive to your wife in the morning? Yeah, it happens. And my own family, they find me repulsive. Even young boys scorn me. When I stand up, they mock me. All of my best friends despise me. 
And those I love have turned against me. My sin and my flesh cling to my bones. I've escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, my friends. Have mercy for God's hand has struck me. Can you relate to that? At work, do you feel isolation? Let's look at how this is kind of broken down in just a couple of verses. Verses 13 and 14, Job says he identifies his family. He's isolated away from his family. In verses 15 and 16, his friends and his employees, coworkers, he is cut off from them. In verses 17 and 18, he specifically points out his wife and his children. Is there anything worse than being isolated from the ones you love? In verse 19, he points out that he's isolated from his close friends and loved ones. You see, this is universal. I think we can all understand at least to a degree what he's going through because at some point in our lives, we all feel isolated from one thing, person, group, or another. But there is an answer, and the answer is great. And as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, Jesus gives us the answer. So let's look at that. And I want to point out first that Jesus chose isolation. He's the only one who ever chose the place and time he was born and to whom he was born. You got no vote. And neither did your parents. Jesus is the only one in all of human history who elected where he was going to be born and to whom. And he chose to be isolated. Think about it. He was born to a young, unwed, lonely couple. In the 2006 movie, The Nativity Story, they do a great job, I think, capturing this capturing the idea of what Joseph and Mary may have gone through culturally as Mary finds out the news that she is going to give birth to the Savior. She says, but, but I'm not married. And the angel tells her what's going to happen, and she says, let it be to me as you have said, knowing that she would be isolated, knowing that she would be cut off, and that she would be rejected possibly even by Joseph. And the beginning of the movie starts out really, really great because it shows Mary engaging in both work and in play with her friends. She's having a good time with them. They smile at her. Everybody's friendly. They all love each other. It's all great and wonderful. And then they find out that she's going to have a baby, and she gets those looks. And you know those looks. She gets those looks that, what did you do? Why are you lying to us? Doubt, questions, fear, rejection. She starts getting those looks. Even Joseph has to have a vision from an angel in a dream so that he does not reject her. And Jesus was born into this. When Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem to register, they're cut off. Why do they go to Bethlehem? They go to, to register for the census, right? But why? 
because that's David's city. That's where Joseph's family is, and no one invites them in. They're completely cut off. My parents live in Colorado Springs. It would be like me driving with our family to Colorado Springs, getting to my parents' house, knocking on the door, not them not coming to the door or saying go away, trying to get in the garage because I know their garage code, and having find, to come to find out that my dad has changed the garage code. It would be like that, rejected, isolated, and alone. Mary sacrificed her reputation, at least for a time. And Jesus chose isolation. A second answer for Jesus' isolation is sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed so much. We can't even comprehend, we can't begin to understand what Jesus gave up in heaven to come to earth to pay for our sins on the cross. In the glimpses we get of heaven, there are angels singing praises to God all day long, every day. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's receiving praise and glory, and he gives that up to be born in a manger, to be born with no one around him of wealth, power, or influence. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's a position of humility. And you think when someone important is born, think back to the last couple royal children that have been born. What happens all across the world? Twitter, Facebook, news, they all blow up with pictures of the baby, right? Because someone important has just been born. And God sent Jesus to be born to a young couple. He sacrificed all of that to be born to Joseph and Mary. And who does God choose to announce it to? The shepherds. Who were shepherds on the societal ladder? They were at the bottom. These are guys who spent all of their time out in the fields with sheep, and the angel shows up to them. They have no power. They have no influence. Nobody's going to them to ask their opinion of anything. They're just out there doing their job. We just leave them alone, let them do their thing. And God shows up to them. Jesus sacrificed all of the, the glory and the splendor of heaven to come down, to be born in a stable. And he made his presence known to the most humble and lowly of all. There is one thing that I really do feel like I need to point out about isolation because this is specifically relational isolation when we don't have a choice or we have made a very poor choice. But there is an aspect of isolation that is temporary and very, very purposeful and I think we find it more and more difficult to actually do in our day and age. So Jesus temporarily and intentionally isolated himself to rest and pray. It's something God commanded his people to do on the Sabbath was to disconnect from everything and give that day in worship to him. Jesus takes time and isolates himself to rest and pray. And this is really, really cool. This is something that I need to do better at, that I need to learn as well. 
So turn your Bibles over to the New Testament, Mark 1, starting in verse 35 through verse 38. It says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. The word here for deserted is eremos. It is literally a wilderness. It is someplace that is lonely and set apart. It's like West Texas. You drive out there and there's nothing for miles and miles and miles. And then you look at your gas gauge, right? You drive past that town and then go, oh, I should have stopped. There is nothing. Jesus intentionally went to a lonely Eremos, a lonely place to pray. And then what happens? Peter finds him. says, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus' answer is so great. It's awesome. It's absolutely the opposite of what we would expect or what I think many of us, most of us would probably do. Jesus, you see, he had been building up this ministry. He had been meeting in a house and teaching and healing people of their sickness and disease, and the crowds were coming and swarming the house. And as he's gaining popularity, he goes to a lonely place to pray. He's found, he plays some hide-and-seek with his disciples because he's awesome like that. The disciples come and find him. He says to them, instead of saying like we would expect, okay, let's go back, yeah, let's build this thing. This is awesome. He says, Let's go on to neighboring villages so I can preach there too. That's why I've come. He's like, hey, that crowd is great. The ministry that's been done there, that's really good. Let's go to the next one. Wait, Jesus, wait. There's, you're, they know you already. You could come and you can build this. He's like, that's cool. Let's go to this one because I've come not just to camp out in one spot. I've come to seek and save the lost. There's another verse in Luke Luke 6, 12 through 13, and this is awesome. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. He spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples, and he chose 12 of them whom he also named apostles. This, this is the first time, this is the only time in the Gospels that the word apostles is used. Luke points out that Jesus named them apostles. And the NIV Application commentary makes this great observation that Jesus' selection of the 12 men is set in a context of communion with God and that this is the only place in the New Testament where an all-night vigil is noted. The only example we have of an all-night vigil is Jesus. And he takes time to pray before he selects the 12 apostles. How important must that time have been and that night that Jesus sets aside everything else while the disciples are sleeping, he goes and he prays for them. He spends that time communing with God and then he calls them up to select them. You remember that story that I told you a few minutes ago about Brett who fell overboard in the boat? Well, it wasn't the end of the story. He, he didn't die. In fact, he survived 28 hours in the open water. I'll get to that slide in a second because it's awesome. He, he created all kinds of 
methods to stay alive. In fact, in his head, when he realized what was going on, he knew he was starting to hallucinate. He knew he had to engage his mind, so he created a personal company, and he gave characteristics and actually personhood to different parts of his body. His mouth he named Bob as the CEO of his company. His left nostril he named Hillary. She was the sales manager. His right nostril was Emily. She was in marketing. And then they would hold board meetings and their whole mission as a company was to keep Brett alive. And so they would have these discussions. It reminds me of Castaway a bit. And quite frankly, if you have seen the movie Castaway, how many of us didn't get the tug on our heartstrings when the volleyball starts to float away from Tom Hanks? And quite honestly, take a second and think about that. There are people who cried about a volleyball. A volleyball. But that's because there was such a connection that Tom Hanks had to the volleyball. Not because it was a volleyball. We can go to the store, we can get another one. He couldn't because he was in the middle of the ocean, but that's his problem. Our problems are different. Brett fought for 28 hours. In fact, a couple of times he even tried to drown himself and then kicked it out because he couldn't give up. He was interviewed by National Geographic, and this is an excerpt from his interview. They asked him, how has this changed you? Did this experience change you at all? And my response, I'm way too sarcastic. I think he's far more gracious. My response would simply be, uh, I was alone in the ocean for 28 hours. I, yeah, I was changed. Duh. <laughs> That's very articulate. This was his answer. The experience changed my life 180 degrees. I came back to South Africa. I made a pact with myself that I'd never be in an industry that made me unhappy. Before this, I was very materialistic. I chased money, houses, fast cars, private jets. That was my world. Kind of sounds like the American dream, South African dream, kind of fit together. I thought I was being such a cool dude, not a dud. Forgive me, that's a, that's a dude. Um, <laughs> although it does fit. <laughs> Thought I was being such a cool dude while I was in the ocean. I reflected on all that and realized none of that meant anything. I started asking what was really important. Number one was my family. I realized I hadn't been a great husband or a great father. My friends were critically important to me, but I also hadn't been a great friend. I'd always had a strong faith, but I'd not had a formal connection to the church. He had foregone his formal connection to the church in favor of surfing and spent time in the water instead of spending time with God's people. In the sea, I said, if I get through this, I'm going to live my life according to my three F's, faith, family, and friends. And in the rest of the article, we find out that he's been able to do that. And he now travels around the world telling people his story and his experience and encouraging them to place their priorities where they really belong. You see, sometimes that isolation gives us clarity in our lives, but it needs to be temporary. It can't be long term. 
Jesus was the perfect example, as we've talked about the last two weeks. He's the holy human, fully God, fully man. And he chose isolation. He also chose to be forsaken. His followers fled. Judas, who he trained and personally selected, forsook him and betrayed him. Peter denied him repeatedly, and the rest of his followers fled as soon as the authorities showed up. He was abandoned by those he was closest to. He was forsaken, and he chose it. And this actually fulfills Scripture. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 22, where David is lamenting. And this is what David says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Have you ever felt like that? Has this ever been true for you? Where you ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? Jesus called out these same words on the cross. About three in the afternoon, he cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He was forsaken. And not just in this manner, but also by all those around him. You see, there were a crowd of Pharisees and religious leaders who wanted Jesus to be crucified, and they stood at the cross, they witnessed this, and they said something that mirrors this. Look at this from Psalm 22, 7 and 8. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Now, does that in any way, is that reflected by what the religious leaders say in Matthew 27, 43? He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. You see, this fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 22. And the men who said this, they didn't even know what they were saying. I, I have to believe, I have to think that this was a slip, that they just said it because it's what came to their mind, their heart in the moment. And then as soon as they said it, they realized that they had fulfilled Scripture and what they had said because these were men who studied the Scriptures. Many of them would have memorized a vast majority of the Old Testament Scriptures, if not all of them. And as they said those words, oh, that sounds really familiar. Hmm. Oops. Jesus was forsaken for us, for you and for I, and he chose it. He chose to be isolated. He chose to be forsaken, and this morning, I'm so glad that you're here. We're ending a year today together and beginning a new year tomorrow, or for some of us, we'll begin that new year tonight as we stay up past midnight, right? Right? Show of hands, who's staying up? Just curious. Oh, good, about 5%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is no greater message that you can hear on this day than Jesus loves you and he paid the price for your sins so that you do not have to be isolated from God any longer.
hear that clearly. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past experience is, Jesus covered the cost of your sin and mine. And that brings us to the last answer that Jesus gives to isolation. That's unity. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 10.30 quickly. And as you're turning there, this is what's going on. Jesus is walking in the temple at Solomon's Colonnade. He's walking with his disciples. He gets surrounded by this mob of religious leaders. And they want an answer to a question. And they want a direct answer because Jesus was known for not giving direct answers, but instead for asking questions or telling a story and and getting to the real issue that they're dealing with instead of what they were asking about. And so they even tell him, tell us plainly. They want to know, is Jesus the Messiah? Who are you? And Jesus tells them that though they see the works that he does in the Father's name, they don't recognize him. You see, all throughout the Gospel of John, John calls Jesus' miracles signs. Signs are simply something that point to something else. These signs that Jesus does, they point to him as the Messiah and the one who would cover our sins. And Jesus gives them an answer that shook them to the very core and continues to shake people to the core today. He says, I and the Father are one. You see, Jesus' answer to isolation is unity. God wants his people to be unified, not uniform. This is great news. We don't all have to dress the same, like the same music, drink the same coffee, although you should drink good coffee because it's better. We don't all have to cheer for the same sports teams. We don't all have to just walk lockstep and become uniform. We can be unified in diversity. In fact, it's vital because God has given us all different gifts and abilities and spiritual gifts to complete the mission, fulfill the mission that he has given the church to do good works of service that he has given to us to do. Unity is an answer to isolation. So, We want to follow the example of Jesus. How do we do this? The first thing is to check, check ourselves, check our heart. We have a tendency to drift. Would you agree? If you don't consistently work on something, you tend to just kind of drift and not even realize it. It's like when you're driving the car and you, in the middle of the night, you just kind of drift one way and then you hit the rumble strip and you get woken up. Nope, whoop, come back on the road. A few years ago, uh, I led a mission trip of teenagers to New Jersey. I have a friend there who worked for an organization with teens in the inner city and children in the inner city, and after the hurricane, I called her and I, I asked her, I said, can we bring a group of teenagers to New Jersey and just help build stuff and clean up? And she said, no. Well, I thought you just had a hurricane. We did, and they're doing a fantastic job cleaning it up. What you could do is bring a group of teenagers and help us lead a day camp 
for inner city kids. I was like, oh, I'm so down. That's awesome. Let's do that. So we put a team together. We flew to New Jersey. Uh, we, we put on this day camp in the morning and into the afternoon, and then we would have the late afternoon and evenings free, and we went to the beach because it's the summer. It's New Jersey. We went to the beach. It was great. And one, of the, one day, we were at the beach and just having a great time, and a group of our girls all together, they just went out into the water. And I was sitting there talking with Lenita. We're talking about mission trip stuff and the details, how things are going, just kind of checking in. And the girls just kept going out further and further and further to the point where they're in the ocean. They're kind of on their tiptoes and the waves are coming up. They're just having a great time. They don't even realize that they were caught in the tide and they were moving down the beach. They were starting to get away from us to where the riptide was actually coming out, where other people were staying away from. We didn't know this. We were sitting on the beach watching them, and I literally, I looked at Lenita. I'm like, they look like they're a little bit too far. And as I said the word far, I hear this ear-shrieking pierce of a whistle blow, and a lifeguard takes off, and he's running past me with a buoy in hand. And then another one comes running by. And I'm like, that's interesting. I wonder who they're going after. And so Lenita and I watch as these two young 20-something lifeguard guys run out into the water. They toss their buoy, just like you'd see in those old shows from the 80s that nobody should have ever watched. And (laughs) the water's kind of cresting, and they jumped over the wave, and they start swimming out to the girls, and they get out there to where the girls are. They give them the buoy, and then they tug them back into the safety of the beach because they had drifted too far away without even knowing it. Because the girls didn't locate us on the shore and stay close. And when the girls got up to where we were, they got their towels and they were drying off and staying warm. And I looked at them and I was like, so ladies, I just have this question. If you knew that it was gonna be those two guys who were coming out to rescue you, would you have gone just a little bit too far? You know, just because? All of them. Well, yeah. (laughs) You see, these lifeguards went out to rescue them. They did their job, and then I did mine. I went to a local coffee shop, and I put money down on a tab for the lifeguards to go get coffee whenever they wanted, just as a way to say thank you for watching out for our students. The point is, we have a tendency to drift without even knowing it. So I would beg you and implore you to ask you, where are you in relation to the shore? Jesus, he's way better than any lifeguard, and he's throwing us a buoy. He wants to bring us back to safety. So I would say check your heart. If you do not have a regular daily reading plan, get one. There are tons available online. There are more resources than we have ever had available to us before. Get a reading plan. Read daily. It doesn't have to be much, but just get into God's word. Check your heart. Check where you are. You're not too far, I promise. No matter how far away you may be, you are not too far. Look, God promises us in James that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. So let's draw near to God in 2018. Second, seek real friendships 
especially in difficult times, and real, deep, meaningful friendships. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says this, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more, as you see the day approaching, Join a life group. Get involved in the life of the church. If you're not serving in a ministry, sacrifice some of your time and get involved in a ministry. Do something, engage in the life of the church. Gather together. Don't give that up because that's an answer to isolation. Don't withdraw from the body when things get difficult. Engage more. And third, forgive and seek unity. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Bear with one another in love. Forgive each other. We all make mistakes. When someone sins against you, forgive as God has forgiven you. Let us be, in 2018, let us be a church that is unified under the banner of Jesus for his glory, for the good of our city, for the good of his people. We don't have to be isolated because Jesus has provided the answer for isolation. The moment you trust Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit, you receive the Holy Spirit to live inside of you and you are never isolated from God again. Though you may feel distant, you are not isolated. Don't let feelings of isolation run all over you. Instead, engage. Find ways to sacrifice and be unified with the body of believers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for all that you've given to us, the ways that you've blessed us, for this body that you have drawn together. God, I pray for those of us who feel isolated right now, even amongst so many friends, there can be isolation, and God, I pray that that would not be the case, but that we would be connected and unified together in you. And God, as I pray, I know some of us are hurting that this time of year is difficult, and so I pray for those who are struggling today and ask that you would be with them in a special way. And I also don't want to neglect an opportunity. If you don't know Jesus, if you have not put your faith and trust in him to forgive you of your sins, I want to give you that opportunity right now that if that's not something you have done, then put your trust in Jesus. Don't be isolated, don't be cut off anymore. 
Is there anyone here this morning who would, for the first time, say yes to Jesus? Put your trust in him to forgive you of your sins, to bring you into unity with God the Father. Anyone this morning? Father, I thank you for all you've given and done. Thank you for unifying us, yourself, for doing the hard work and for all that you have given. And God, now I pray that as we give our offering that you would take this and that you would bless it and that it would be used for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.